welcome to this podcast from the Triple Helix Cambridge July Café Scientifique event, sponsored by the Medical Research Council. I'm Ben Valsler from thenakedscientists.com. This month's Café Scientifique focused on the infant science of synthetic biology. Dr. Craig Venter made the news recently by announcing that he'd created synthetic bacteria, but there is more to synthetic biology than the aim to create man-made life. The event speaker was Dr. Goss Micklem from the Department of Genetics at the University of Cambridge. Synthetic biology is a young field which seeks to apply engineering principles to biology and it's based on the premise that we now understand enough about biology that we can start to rationally re-engineer biological systems rather than engineer them in a rather haphazard way as has been going on for the last 35 years. So it obviously includes things like genetic engineering, but there's more to it than that. Um, yes, I think that's right. Genetic engineering has tended to focus on rather specific, comparatively small-scale changes. And I think synthetic biology, partly through virtue of the fact that you can now synthesize really large segments of DNA, gives you the capability to make many, many more changes. And with that, then, you need to start thinking in a, if you like, using a computational modeling approach to start to look at the consequences of what you're what you're doing so before we've been looking at individual genes trying to work out how they work what they do and with the field of synthetic biology we're looking more at the systems that are in place how these things work together and how we can co-opt those systems to do what we want Yes, there is a field of biology called systems biology which um, seeks to look at the biological systems in terms of their parts. And I think synthetic biology in, in some senses is a nice counterpart to that because whereas systems biology is still a reductionist um, field, it's uh, making a large number of measurements and trying to infer what is actually there. In synthetic biology, you define what the parts are that are doing the important interactions and then you study them. So you're in much greater control of the system you're trying to model. You said it's a, quite a young science, but there also seem to be elements in it that are trying to encourage very young scientists to get involved. I think that's right. Well, it's young and it's also not so young. So, for instance, there are synthetic biologists out there, for instance, Peter Ledley in the biochemistry department, who've been doing synthetic biology for really f- for quite a long time. But I think the mainstream popular get the undergraduates involved synthetic biology has really only been going for five or six years i'd like to say that it was only when the summer competition became international which was in 2005 which happened to be the year we joined it that was really when it got started the uh, igem competition is a really very interesting idea in the sense that it the field is trying to bootstrap itself off the enthusiasm of, of the sort of younger generation of scientists so they're less jaded they're less cynical they're more open to new ideas and through um, dint of their a enthusiasm and b this idea that whatever they make is available to the next year's competition um, it is uh, been remarkable in the last five years not only has the competition grown hugely the number of teams have grown have grown hugely it was i think 121 this year but the ambitions of the projects that are carried out and the success to which they're carried out has also improved markedly as well. So in the first couple of years, anybody getting anything to work at all was cause for celebration and now the bar is really much higher. You've already mentioned that in synthetic biology we occasionally need to take a sort of computational angle to it. It's also quite a multidisciplinary science. Well, so the IGEM teams from the start have been encouraged to be multidisciplinary directly to reflect that. So um, our first team was three engineers and three life scientists. And since then, we've always kept the number of engineers, all physicists and computational scientists, people who have a numerical modeling background, roughly balanced with the number of people who have the biological backgrounds. And that seems to work really well. So at the end of the summer, the engineers have really quite a good insight into what biology is and the um, 
and biologists have got a much better insight into how you think in engineering terms. What do you think synthetic biology is likely to lead us to? What do you think will be the, the rewards from this research? There are a number of examples now where you can see that you are close to or actually at something useful. So, for instance, transplantation of biosynthetic pathways from one organism to one that's more amenable to large-scale culture under controlled conditions is one example of that. And another example is this case of re-engineering flu viruses so that they have a very large number of mutations in them. So I think this it's a really technique with really a lot of potential is that you can take any viral pathogen, resynthesize it in such a way as you can guarantee that it'll be sick and thereby generate a live viral vaccine. Synthetic biology has been in the news a lot recently with Craig Venter's announcement that he has created a synthetic genome and put it into a bacterium. It does mean that synthetic biology has also been widely discussed. How are the public accepting it? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think unlike the um, the GM um, researchers of, of uh, a decade or two ago, uh, the synthetic biology community is much more aware of the need to discuss the ethics and the uh, practicalities of what they're doing with the community. And the Royal Canopy of Engineering carried out a survey last year, which they surveyed a 1,000 adults in the UK and discussed these issues with them. And the general um, response to synthetic biology was that the public wasn't really opposed to it. They had a very sensible response, which is that it should be regulated, it should be carried out in controlled conditions, and it should be discussed. And I think that's uh, in that sense, there's a, a chance that society and the practitioners will come to a sensible agreement about what people should and should not do. Some of the questions we had from the crowd this evening seem to reflect a concern that we might be... In fact, one of them referred to Frankenstein. We might be playing God and creating things that we can't control. Do you think this is a legitimate concern, or is this something that synthetic biologists have got under control? I think the issues that arise when one considers the sort of Frankenstein question are the same as for genetically modified organisms in general, and they're subject to the same need for debate and control and regulation as as for GM crops. It's not a case of having it under control. It's one that one needs to do very careful safety evaluations. One needs to consider the problem from all angles, and one shouldn't willy-nilly release stuff into the wild. Dr Goss Micklem from the Department of Genetics at the University of Cambridge. Now, as usual, after the event, we opened up the floor to any audience questions. The custom-made virus, flu virus that you showed, uh, does it have similar properties as the Y-type virus? It just does everything very slowly. And that's kind of the cute thing. So if you think about a disease like multiple sclerosis, if you could just slow it down two or three-fold, it wouldn't be nearly as much of a problem because we'd die anyway before it killed us. And, <laughs> and, and that's true for, for actually quite a lot of diseases. So with flu, you can raise a pretty good immune reaction against it. If you can just slow flu down, then your body has, is capable of fighting it off. And essentially, that's what a, you could sort of think of that's what a live vaccine does anyway. You give a corrupted live virus that's sick. It can't, it can't replicate rapidly. Your immune system is able to develop an immune reaction against it. And then if you're infected with the real virus, you can fight it off. So uh, Craig Venter and his claim of developing artificial life. I'm assuming he stitched all these pieces of genes together, this DNA together, and ultimately it formed a huge genome, which kind of, when it got expressed, it formed proteins, which formed the construct of the cell. So with this, uh, the DNA that he stitched together, was this already the DNA of a bacterium or of a cell already? And so why did he stitch it? 
they'd already sequenced the genome of the, of the donor strain. So they knew, knew, they knew what they were starting with, and then they resynthesized that. And they put in a few barcodes and their signatures, and, and, and you know, they, they put the We Were Here stamp to prove it was really, okay. really synthetic. But they synthesized it from synthetic chemicals, and then they built that up in E. coli and yeast to the point where it was large enough to transplant directly into the... Okay, so how far away do you conceive we are from deciding, okay, they're the genes that make it, let's make our own cell? I think we're a long way from doing that, and I think there's good reasons for, for believing so. So the Craig Venter view of the world is you want to try and find the fewest genes that are required for life. So that mycoplasma strain has about 485 genes, which is very few, so we have of order 20 to 30,000 in humans, and most complex organisms have thousands of genes. So 485 is a very small number, and they like to point out that 100 of those aren't essential for life in the laboratory. You can knock out, they, they don't like it when you point out that you can't knock all of those 100 out. So you can knock each individual one of those 100 out, and it will survive. But if you start knocking out more than one, it doesn't. So you know that to build a cell, therefore, you're going to need of order a few hundred genes. And we don't fully understand all the function of all of those yes. genes yet. And furthermore, if we would start picking and mixing and matching genes from different organisms, equivalent genes from different organisms, it's a really good bet that we'll, the thing just won't know how to turn the clockwork of the, of the cell cycle properly. So the fact that he's managed to do this at all in a minimal system isn't necessarily surprising given that it is a minimal yep. system, but he's heading in the direction that you're asking, which is to try and put something together again. But I think our understanding is far beneath being able to do that. I was interested in the, the implications on how we approach science in terms of the interaction of, of chemistry and biology. You're, today you're talking about synthetic biology. Trends in chemistry include chemical biology. Uh, the, the slide you offered at the front, uh, semi-synthesis, so is obviously uh, that kind of technology has been well known in, in chemistry for many years. But in terms of moving forward as, as two disciplines, how do you see chemists and biologists interacting in the future? So when I arrived here, I, I discovered that all the departments were muddled up. And so, for instance, the genetics department does uh, some genetics, but a lot of molecular biology. The biochemists kind of do a lot of molecular biology, too. A lot of the biochemistry is happening in the chemistry department. So I think they already are interacting at all levels. So I don't know whether the people on the team who did the artemisian transplant were chemists, but I would bet they were chemists there. I mean, they do, it's a semi-synthesis. Somebody took the stuff that came off the end and did the rest of the synthesis, and they weren't biologists. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Given the pressure on uh, publicly funded medical research, at, at least, how easy is it to justify what you might call this blue skies research uh, as against some research that might lead more directly to human health benefits? Things like the, uh, a, a single unified way of taking any viral pathogen and making a sick version of it for vaccine purposes, I think that's a direct medical application that may really be the way we make rapid response for our vaccines in the future. So I would say it's not particularly blue skies. For the iGEM competition and the like, it's a yearly struggle to raise enough funds to keep the competition going on. I mean, it's a, it's a pain. And actually, this year, for the first time, the Wellcome Trust, which is one of the biggest, well, I guess the biggest medical charity in this country, has put up enough money that five teams, 10 teams in the UK, 10 teams in the UK for 10 students. And so that 
for the first time has taken a, a significant amount of pressure off putting the, the competition on. And I think to, to sort of finish answering your question about is Blue Sky's research justified, I'd say absolutely. You know, this is an argument that the government's uh, having now with the, the need for cutbacks. Other countries are putting more money into basic research. We're talking about cutting it back. It's a bad mistake. You can't predict where the Blue Sky stuff, the big advances, it's very difficult to, to work out where they're going to come from. You seem to be very enthusiastic about the second example you've shown us of the sick viruses, and I'm wondering if you're at all concerned about it, because as much as we understand quite well translation mechanism, it is my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, that we don't understand quite as well regulatory mechanism. And that's what you're hurting, really, right? I mean, we have no idea what proteins are going to come out the sickness derives from the fact that, I mean, let's just say that to be, uh, in simple terms, the viruses live inside their little house, their capsid, and they, they need lots of that protein to make the viral particles. So if you fail to make enough of that, you're just not going to produce viral particles, therefore your viral titer is low and the virus is sick. And so you could go in with conventional genetic engineering and you could interrupt the gene, you could interfere with the gene that makes that viral capsid in such a way that it would less would be produced. And the problem with that is every time the viruses replicate is they mutate, and very, very rapidly you'd get variant viruses that no longer had the problem or were, after all, able to package themselves fine. And so the interesting thing about this is that you have a very complicated system, and you've, you've introduced changes that interfere in many, many different ways with the different levels of the proteins, and therefore interfere with the production, the correct synchronized production of all the different parts that you need. And it's almost impossible, because you've made hundreds or thousands of changes, for the virus to get around that. Am I correct in thinking that your sick virus, that any single sick virus, will only generate immunity against one particular strain of yes. flu virus? It's not more sophisticated yeah. than that. I mean, that's precisely because you haven't generated extra diversity. You're actually just making exactly the same proteins as before, just in the wrong amounts. Yeah, I'd like to go back to the Frankenstein question. So, <laughs> so you said we're not creating artificial life, fine, but I think that's more semantic because, for example, genetically uh, modified organisms think, I'm not too sure, but I think they're banned in Europe or something like that. So just already like your, your sick virus is also, a, you know, it's some kind of genetically modified version of your virus and, it, and this reproduce and this is living. So that's, for me, that's some kind of artificial life. And the question is, how really do you understand the consequences of those things, like, you know, being deployed in a society and stuff like that. Yeah, so, I mean, I think these are really important questions to, for um, society to think about. And I think one of the interesting differences between the synthetic biology community and the genetically mod modified organism community, and they, they do overlap to some extent, is the fact that the synthetic biology community is much more involved with debating the ethics right from the start. So, Part of the IGEM competition requires you to consider the ethics of what you're doing. We've had people from the London School of Economics specifically studying that, being part of our team last year. Royal Academy of Engineering has just done a big study looking at the public's opinion, and the idea is to engage rapidly, because let's look at it from the point of view of a pandemic. At a certain point, things are so bad that it's worth risking something that's somewhat uh, unproven. And I think that in this area, if you're prepared to address major medical problems, then you're on a better grounding than if you say you just wanted to generate something, I don't know, artificial life for the fun of it. As far as what will happen when one releases one of these multi-engineer, these, these detuned viruses into the wild, I actually, as a biologist, I don't think I have much fear about that. I think that's 
I'm not going to say it's safe. It needs to be considered carefully. But for instance, if you make a mutant virus that only has one or two changes, you know it's going to mutate and get around your changes rapidly. But you've taken a system where you've made hundreds or thousands of changes. There isn't any way it can get around all of those. And even if you're co-infected with a wild-type virus, if they do recombine, which they may well do, the wild-type virus is going to inherit um, you know, half of a sick virus, and it's going to get sick. So I think there's really very little way the virus can wriggle around that. So I think I'm, I'm, if I'm being enthusiastic, maybe it's uh, premature enthusiasm, but I think it has potential. Um, if I could just take a really fantastic tact and plagiarize um, 24, if people are getting quite good at resequencing the, the virus to make it sicker, could that same knowledge be used to actually make it worse? And, I mean, I know this word doesn't really exist in the language, but what if someone weaponized it? There are actually quite a few articles now on, on the risks of using this type of synthetic technology for evil. And the DNA synthesis companies now routinely screen for pathogens. In theory, you can go look up the genome sequence of polio. You haven't got any polio. Well, let's think of something nasty, Ebola, right? So you can go and get the DNA sequence of Ebola, which I'm pretty sure has been sequenced by now. And you can get that out of the DNA sequence database, work of five minutes, and you could send it off to the DNA synthesis company. Now, they will check for that, and they won't synthesize it for you. The way DNA sequences work is that even if you were to break it into smaller and smaller pieces so that it was distribute all the pieces to different DNA synthesis companies so that nobody would notice, unfortunately, the size of the piece of DNA that is, is truly innocuous is too small for you then really to reassemble. So it's, unless you were very, very devious, it's probably quite difficult for you to deliberately manufacture something pathogenic or resynthesize something pathogenic. But a journalist did a few years ago try and do this, but since then the, the DNA synthesis companies have wised up. So I think that is a potential concern, but look at it from the perspective of a terrorist, right? If I want to be a terrorist, it's just, comparatively speaking, so much easier to go and build a bomb than it is to set up a lab, do some research, have the necessary skills, build a bioweapon that might not even work. You know, it's, it's, it, it's so hard to do any of these things that doing it for malicious reasons, I think, is formally it's possible. But then there's so many nasty things you can do with almost any technology. After the event, I caught up with some audience members to find out their thoughts. It was an excellent presentation, I thought, and uh, it uh, clarified a lot of issues which I'd thought about quite a bit myself. I've been reading about Craig Venter and all this uh, hype that's been put out about his efforts, and uh, I think um, the speaker was absolutely excellent. He, uh, he covered it superbly and very clearly. If the modified bug suddenly gets itself a life of its own, the scientists have an advance because they actually know what it looks like already. Yes, my view about that is that uh, any organism created by man could never, be, uh, could never outdo an organism created by many millions of years of evolution. I mean, it's a nonsense. I'm still not entirely sure that it's safe to use synthetic biology for viral strains. So he was talking about using this shuffling of genetic material in a really subtle way that decreased the 
if I'm getting this right, that decreased the ability of the virus to infect and propagate within the human body. But he was using studies from mice, which might not necessarily translate to humans. And also, if they're subtle changes, I'm still not convinced that they're not... It's not going to mutate and it's going to cause some big problem to humankind. The same goes for genetic engineering, but I think it needs a lot of regulation and these things like Cafe Scientific and trying to engage with the public. I think it clarifies and crystallises in some of the scientists' minds these issues that they might possibly not otherwise consider because they're in the kind of ivory tower doing the science and getting carried away with it a bit. Well, I come from the perspective of a non-scientist and... Um, as Goss referred to, Craig Venter. Craig Venter's um, proposal about how he created artificial life, he was so media-centric um, that it was just overhyped and everything. And it's so difficult to sort of really get a perspective. But then when you hear Goss's perspective on it, and it just sounded just so normal, and it just sounded like there wasn't any hype to really believe. And I just thought somewhat reassured. And in my opinion was that I think in, in some ways it's a good thing. And I did like the idea of Goss talking about how the media does control science in some ways. That It was interesting to hear um, him describe about the GM crops. And I found that very reassuring that in his perspective that he thought it was a good thing. And I've always thought that it's a good thing too. And that's it for this month's podcast. Cambridge Café Scientifique will be back soon and in a new venue, the Arts Picture House Bar on St Andrew Street in Cambridge. Look out for an announcement about the next date and speaker online at camtriplehelix.com slash cafe underscore sci. Or you can sign up for the mailing list. Just email cafedirector at camtriplehelix.com. The Triple Helix Cambridge Café Scientifique is sponsored by the Medical Research Council and this podcast was produced by me, Ben Valsler, from thenakedscientists.com. Thank you.